Good morning. It's a privilege to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, I would like to offer my condolences to those of you who have lost loved ones over the past few days. May God's strength be with you. I think that uh, maybe a little further introduction is possibly needed. I, I feel a little strange standing up here. Some of you don't know me or know um, my personality, and so it, it feels like some of the things I say might be taken out of context or interpreted the wrong way because you don't, you don't know me. When I stand up in front of my church at home, they've, uh, they've dealt with me now for a number of years, and they understand um, my nuances, but... Uh, my grandparents are buried here at church, um, Samuel and Hilda Stolzfus. So that means that, uh, like was already mentioned, I have relatives here. Um, after I was nominated to be in the lot for deacon at church, you know, one of the questions that they ask you is, are you willing to work uh, with the existing leadership team in harmony? And, and I said, yeah, I, I think I am, but I'm a miller. And... Um, we sort of interpret, you know, life the way we do, sort of strange. And um, one of the men there said, well, I thought that um, Dick Kepikness came from the Hilda Sammy side, um, not the Millers. But so maybe I have a double dose. Um, yeah, if, if, you, uh, if you want to visit our family reunions sometimes, maybe you would better understand just how Dick Kepik we are. So this morning we want to, to look into the Word of God, and, and as we open the Word of God, of course you should listen, but then in the end I have some personal um, observations that I will make, and that's the part that you can take or leave. Um, uh, if it helps you, fine. If not, just let it go. Um, but when we look at the Word this morning, we want to see uh, what, what there is to learn. Last summer, a tornado swept through um, an area just south of here. Uh, just a few miles south, and there was one man on a farm who was stranded in the barn. He didn't have time to make it to the shelter of the house uh, where his family was, wondering where he was. Instead, he clung to the heaviest piece of equipment he could find in, in the shed. And so the, the wind took the roof and part of the wall, and when the dust settled, there was, there was the man um, uh, next to... Uh, the tractor, holding on for dear life. Uh, I guess it was a John Deere. But that farm and that barn and that man was at the eye of the storm. That's where the tornado was. Now, at our house, uh, we were north of there. It was windy, and there was some damage. But at the center of the storm, at the eye of the storm, is where the real devastation occurs. That's where the danger lies. And so today I would like for you to picture that satellite image from space of a tornado where there's circular clouds, but in the middle is the eye of the storm. Think about that as we talk about idolatry. So when you think about idolatry, idolatry is really the worship of idols. We understand that. And so we should know what worship is, and we should know what idols are. So worship is a combination of, of two old English words, worth and ship. Um, ship, we, we still use this. We, we talk about friendship. That's the quality of being a friend. Or craftsmanship. 
It's the quality of your craft. Or sportsmanship, the quality of being a good sport. And then, um, you know, so worship then really is ascribing value. It's the quality of your worth or being worthy, declaring worth. Why do we worship God? We worship God because he's worthy. In, in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. A central part of the Christian's uh, objective in life is to declare that God is worthy of our worship. Now, worship is a response to God. Um, God reveals himself to us, and then we worship him. So we hear from God, we listen, and we acknowledge God. We ascribe the value that is due him. And then the third response, or the third is a response to God in obedience and sacrifice. So worship is a package of listening to God, recognizing that he is worthy, and then living in obedience for him. I want to look at the Old Testament and um, notice uh, how worship was displayed, and then again in the New Testament, and we'll do the same with idolatry. So worship seems a bit vague and haphazard during the time of the patriarchs. We don't really read of them being given much direction as far as uh, worship. One thing is clear, though, that they were to worship God and God alone. And then there was a time uh, during the days of Moses that uh, worship was given a bit of uh, clarity. There was direction and instruction on how to worship and where to worship and who should be involved, involved in worship. There was uh, large formal assemblies, convocations to worship. There was the Passover, the unleavened bread. There were feasts, and there was uh, the tabernacle. It was a holy place. Um, And the design and structure of the tabernacle uh, was such that it inspired the people to worship and explained something of worship. There was a proper time and a proper way to worship God and certain things to be offered by the people in a certain way. The outer court of the tabernacle was somewhat accessible. The inner court was more holy, and only one person once a year could ever go beyond the veil. There was a holy people during a holy time. All of these were spelled out in the law. So some things in worship during the time of Moses were strange to us, the sacrifices, the blood. But one thing was clear, that God, they were to worship God and God alone. The first commandment stated it clearly. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Even during this time where worship seems very formal and spelled out, God was working in the hearts of the people. In Deuteronomy 6, God through Moses teaches the people to store the instructions in their heart. To write them or to teach them to their children where they're sitting or standing or walking and to put the instructions on the doors and to have a constant reminder of who God is, a constant call to worship. In Jeremiah 7, 
The Lord was angered by his people because they were, they were offering sacrifices, but in their walk with the Lord and in, in obedience, they were going backward and not forward. And Isaiah's rebuke is even more harsh. In Isaiah 1, verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? You trample my courts. Bring no more fuel sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary just I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The prophet Samuel tells King Saul that God, God's eyes, obedience, better than sacrifice. Obedience to God, then, is the ultimate worship experience. In Micah 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn child? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That was the Old Testament. Now looking into the New Testament, when Jesus took up residence on the earth, he visited the temple on occasion, but mostly was seen in a synagogue. On one occasion, Jesus spoke very clearly to the question of which location was best suited for worship. And you remember the story how Jesus spoke in John 4 to the woman, and she was wondering where to worship. And Jesus tells her that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus agrees with Isaiah and Jeremiah that true worship is not a place or a process, but it is in worshiping God and God alone. And in Matthew 15, Jesus, discussing with the scribes and Pharisees, um, says that they have, uh, they have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we see that they had lifted tradition to the level of God's law. Jesus said you can say the right things and be at the right location for worship, 
But if your heart is full of rebellion, you are not a worshiper. You are an idolater. Paul's letters give many details of early church life. But it seems that one thing is, that is missing is instruction on how to worship. What are the forms to use? Paul does tell us that we should gather together and not forsake that practice. And he makes some corrections to some of the early church practices of the day. But generally, there's little said about how to worship. In Romans 12, however, he does address this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. It seems as if the reason Paul mentions worship, worship so little is because he expected our whole lives to be given as an offering, a sacrifice of worship. In the New Covenant, we are now the temple or dwelling place of God. He dwells within us. And just like in Moses' day, the temple was a constant flurry of worship and worshipful activity, so we too are to be constantly worshiping. With God's presence in us, our whole being should be constantly worshiping. We worship God because he is worthy. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, I serve God with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. The, the word serve uh, is translated from the Greek word uh, for worship. So Paul is offering his, his whole life as a sacrifice by preaching the gospel. He says it again in chapter 15 and verse 16. God gave me the grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The priestly duty, our call to worship. So preaching the gospel was an act of worship for Paul. He was obedient to, to the Lord's call in reaching the Gentiles. In the Old Covenant, God required the Israelites to serve him through the priesthood. But in the New Covenant, we are uh, the priesthood of Christ. We are the temple of God. And we should be constantly worshiping, not just on Sunday mornings, but in obedience to Christ, in our whole lives, a living sacrifice. The places and practices of worship have changed some through the years. Who, but who we are to worship and why we worship will never change. We worship God, and we worship God because he is worthy. Now let's take a look at idolatry. And I'd like to look at, at two different examples of idolatry in the Old Testament. In the Old, in the Old Testament, we see many different gods. Um, it was like a buffet of, of options. There was Asherim, Teraphim, there was Baal, Dagon, just many, many gods that the Israelite people uh, dealt with. Many were... Uh, many of the ways to worship these gods were, were disgusting and gruesome and full of lewdness and filthiness. 
and many Israelite kings went after false gods. But the first example of idolatry I'd like to look at is in the book of Exodus. And you can turn to uh, chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 20, God spoke the law to Moses, who was to dictate the law and teach the children of Israel to live it. And he starts out by saying that, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And he goes on to teach Moses about the altar, how to build it. He gives laws for servants, how to handle violence. There were laws for animals, property. There were Sabbath laws and holy days introduced. He gives instruction for the tabernacle, the place where God would live. He tells them what the priests were to wear, where to sacrifice, how to sacrifice. He sets apart Aaron and his sons, and he tells them what to offer and when and how often. He tells of the labor, of the oil, and the incense, and all of these instructions took a very long time. And in chapter 32, it says that now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And this, my friends, is the eye of idolatry. It is the center of idol worship. They're giving credit to the calf for their deliverance when only God had done it. That is idolatry. Verse 5, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Get down, for the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore... Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. The eye, or the center, or the core of idolatry is giving credit for what God has done to someone or something else. The Israelites credited the preservation of the entire nation of Israel 
to a golden calf. When it was God who had miraculously delivered them from Egypt, it was God who had sent Joseph ahead of them to prepare the way. And it was God who had saved them, preserved them, and led them out with a strong right arm. God did it, not the calf. And when they credited the calf for what God had done, that is idolatry. Self-preservation is at the core of idolatry in the Old Testament. They ascribed to idols what only God could do, preserve them. I'd like to look at another account of idolatry, and you can turn to Numbers chapter 21. And this is the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they are at Mount Hor. They're at Mount Hor by the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Uh, Numbers 21, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. A fascinating story. After they murmured to the Lord, these fiery serpents came and many people, many children of Israel died. But they cried out for relief. And when they looked to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up, they were healed. God miraculously preserved them with a bronze serpent on a pole. And if we read in 2 Kings 18, um, sort of the end of this account, this is 800 years later, roughly. In 2 Kings 18, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, and he broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. This bronze serpent had survived for 800 years. No doubt the story was told and retold. The irony of being delivered from the serpents by gazing on the serpent on a pole. But this had preserved the children of Israel. This deliverance had saved them and preserved them and had given them life. This 800-year-old relic was a, part, a, part, a large part of their culture, their heritage. They were alive and breathing now because 800 years ago, 
great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had the courage to look at this serpent on a pole and be delivered from death. And it was carried with them, and it was worshipped for 800 years before Hezekiah destroys it. Why would Hezekiah destroy a relic that had preserved an entire nation? Well, they were crediting Nehushtan for healing them and saving them and preserving them when it was God who had done it. It was idolatry. When we credit our being preserved on something other than God, it is idolatry. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about idolatry? 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Colossians 3.5 Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And Ephesians 5.5 For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Jesus calls the religious leaders of his day adulterers or idolaters. They were worshiping the wrong gods. They were unfaithful to the Lord who was standing right in front of their very eyes. They were pouring over the scriptures, longing to see the Messiah, but they missed him because of the idolatry of their hearts. They wanted a Messiah to provide freedom from the Romans, national freedom. But Jesus came to provide spiritual freedom and eternal life. They desired a Messiah who would stand up for their injustices, who would fight to deliver them from the Romans. Someone who could restore national pride. And Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. So we've taken a look at scripture, and now I'd like to offer some observations. These are my observations. I have heard uh, many things given the label of idolatry. Sometimes people will say that sports is an idol. Maybe it's entertainment or hobbies or work. Idolatry is ascribing glory that is due God to something else. But I've never heard anyone say that it is because of the NFL or the Major League Baseball Association that they are saved or preserved I've never heard anyone say that entertainment or a hobby has preserved their life or has helped us get to where we are today as a church. They may be vices and they may be weights that we need to cast off, but I think they are at the fringe of the storm. They are at the edge of the storm and not the center or the eye of the storm. Sometimes I I feel like we're pretty far off on what we label idolatry. And these next few minutes, I'd, I'd like to just make us a little uncomfortable. Um, I'm not here to preach to anyone except us. Uh, it's us here. Uh, we're not going to talk about the idols in India or Africa or some other far-off land, but let's talk about possible idols that we face here. And I'd like to begin... Um, my observations from the edge of the storm and work toward the center 
until we get to the heart of the issue. I feel like the most idolatrous people in the world are in North America, and in particular, United States of America. I believe that idolatry is all about self-preservation and ascribing salvation and preservation that God provides to something else. And just like the leaders of Jesus' day wished for preservation in the form of national security, deliverance from the Romans, I believe that we ascribe too much glory to America as a place of salvation and preservation when clearly God is the sustainer. He is the provider. He is the protector. Our security is not found in a nation or a, nation or a national movement, but it is found in Christ and Christ alone. Nationalism is an idol that we face, and we will continue to face, but it is God who preserves us. And we could probably add health and medicine in here as well. We want to preserve self, but we need to rely on God's sustaining power. The last several years in America and in the world have been that the world has been diligent to preserve self. We need to be careful that we ascribe to God what is due him in preserving and saving us. So we've zoomed in from the world to America, and we'll zoom in just a little closer. In America, there's a little place called Lancaster County. And in many parts of the world, and even many parts of our country, people work and labor and toil to scratch together enough of coins to buy their next meal. But here in Lancaster County, we we don't do that. Most of us have ways of making money in our sleep. We have money that makes money. And we have stewarded well, and we have no need of anyone to help us. We have preserved ourselves And we don't need God to do it. To discredit our need for God to sustain us is idolatry. It is God who preserves us. And when we ascribe to riches the preservation and salvation that can only come through Christ, we become idolaters. So we'll keep zooming in a little further. In Lancaster County, there's a little place called Kinzer's or Paradise or Gap or wherever we're at here. But in this little place is a church called Mine Road Amish Mennonite Church. So that's that's us here, right? This might get a little personal, so just brace yourself. But historically, you're connected to Weavertown, so I feel a little bit of uh, grace here to say these things. More than any other church group that I can think of, we have been gifted and given a heritage that is precious. Our forefathers have handed us something of value. We have followed their footsteps. We have emulated them. After all, it was our ancestors and spiritual fathers who charted the course that we are on. And we say that we owe them our lives and a debt of gratitude. We have long-standing traditions, and good, strong heritage. We are Anabaptists, and we are on the right side of history. 
our forefathers were killed for their beliefs. And it is because of them that we find church culture to be a success. And we gauge our worth by how close we follow the footsteps of these men. But we need to be careful that when we ascribe to men or a group of people what really belongs to God, that we won't become idolaters. It was God who saved you, and it is God who keeps saving you and God alone. Men of Simons didn't save you, and Jacob Amon didn't preserve you, and Menobichi didn't sustain your soul. But it's important for us to be identified with all three of these men. I'm guessing, I didn't look, but I'm guessing that at least two of these men are represented on your sign. We call ourselves Weavertown Beachy Amish Mennonite Church. We think it's good to have all three of them there. But where is God in all of this? He's not on our sign. That's reserved for Jacob Amon and Menobichi. So at times I worry that our heritage has become Nehushtan. We're, we're giving it the credit that God deserves. When God has preserved us and saved us, and we ascribe that to men, that's idolatry. Now, I'm not suggesting that with your new building project that you change your name. That's not what I'm suggesting. That's too easy. I'm suggesting that we change our hearts and that we make sure that our hearts are pointed towards Christ rather than some outward shell that is uh, wasting away. So we've zoomed in from the world to North America to the United States and Lancaster County and to this church. And we are about to step into the eye of the storm, the center of idolatry. Remember that worship is about remembering what God has done and telling others what he has done and living obediently for him, recognizing that God alone preserves our lives. That's worship. Idolatry is remembering what God has done, but giving credit to someone else. At the very center of idolatry, the eye of idolatry is me. It is I. I am the eye of idolatry. It is my proud heart that takes credit for preserving me. I did it. I'm a good person. You do not enter the kingdom of God and receive salvation and the preservation of your eternal soul by being an American. You don't get it by being rich or a member of this church. And you don't get it by being good. The only way you can preserve your life is to give it up as a sacrifice, an act of worship to God. He is the one who gives life and sustains your life and provides for your eternal life. God deserves all the credit. I deserve none. I am the eye of idolatry. If we say that we are worshipers, but we are not listening to God, we are idolaters. If we say that we are worshipers, but we provide no offering of service to God, we are idolaters. 
And if we say that we are worshipers, but we are not willing to tell others about what God has done, we are idolaters. Isaiah was a worshiper. He said, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. David and Solomon were worshipers. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Even Nebuchadnezzar became a worshiper of the one true God. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. There have always been worshipers, people who praise God for preserving their life, people who see God as worthy of praise. And there have always been idolaters, people who take the credit for what God has done, people who are at the center of their own universe. It would be a shame for such a fine group of people to be on the right side of history and the wrong side of eternity. May we never give credit to anyone for what only God can do. Idolatry has a wide path. Worship of God is narrow. There is one God, and he alone preserves our lives. We worship God because he's worthy. Let's bow our heads for prayer.